Science. Welcome to Property Science. We are uh, not in our usual place. I'm sat next to Andy Wood, as always. Oh, yes, I'm glad to be here. It seems like whenever we leave the confines of my backyard, it's always for a special occasion. It's always for guests that actually bring something scientific to the table. Yeah, scientific or just... Or, or nerdy, or so, some re- or for some reason, someone who smashes watermelons might justify leaving my backyard <laughs> for a remote recording. We, we're currently in in Venice, uh, in the temporary home of our guest. I'm I'm super excited about this. Let's just introduce us straight off. We've got Jan Eleven. Hi guys, thanks for coming to my little Venice home. Thanks for bringing us. This is a great <laughs> spot you've got here. So we should uh, introduce her a bit. Uh, Jana is normally you're normally based out of Columbia, right? Yes. At uh, Barnard College. Yes. Uh, but New York City. Just make York. sure people know, not Columbia the country. Not Columbia the with country. With an O, with a U, yeah. I didn't even realize they were spelled different. Of course they're spelled differently. I should have known that. <laughs> not Colombia. Colombia. Yeah. Colombia. Yeah. And you hold a PhD in um, theoretical physics from MIT? I do. Correct. And is now a professor at Columbia, but is cur- currently visiting and doing research at Caltech. I am. Uh, you guys so- got the whole data down. <laughs> yeah. Um, the research. All the metrics, yeah. Got everything. Um so this is our, f- our first professor of physics. Wow, really? And mm-hmm. and author, and published author a couple of times over with a, a popular science book, um, How the Universe Got Its Spots, Diary of Diary of a Finite Time in a Finite Space. Yes, and I, you know, I wrote that when I was living in your country. Really? Because you did. were at Cambridge briefly. Yeah, for five years. That's, that's, that's not brief not at that all. Brief. That's actually quite a while. That's half a decade <laughs> you're at Cambridge. Um, and also a, a science-based novel. Um, a Madman Dreams of Turing Machines. Yeah. No, really about mathematicians. Yeah. Really about mathematicians, yeah. uh, but in a novel form, in, uh, which I've seen some very good reviews about. That's going to be your next on my reading list. Oh, good. Gonna... I'd give you one if I had one. I don't uh, have any too... copies. Oh, I'll buy it. I'll buy it. Right. It's the least a buck fifty for me. Woo! <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've got a couple of long flights back to the UK to coming up, so I'll. I'll load that on the Kindle. Great. They're in my queue. Is that a thing? Do, is there a book? A Kindle queue? queue? A, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I current I currently need a new book to plow through. So um so thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's good. I'm glad I'm glad you guys made it out of the backyard. It's, yeah. It's uh it's hard to get us away from there. If you saw the normal setup, you'd be like, Yeah, I wouldn't leave that place either. It's yeah, a, I heard a little it was bit nice. of paradise. You haven't seen yeah. my backyard. Before you leave, you'll go see okay. my backyard. It's I pretty nice too. Out. Really the backyard's nice. properly nice. Where your backyard was nice in the fifties. Yeah, it's sort of it's. Oh, it's, see, it's mine's gradually properly nice. Apart. He said he's seen them both. Yeah, yeah, I have seen them both. Mine has echoes of of much like the uh, the wobblings in space caused by the Big Bang. There are still echoes of when my house was a cool place when it hosted parties with uh, Dick Cavett. Supposedly used to hang oh, out. Oh, nice! But I used backyard. to have a Dick Cavett chair, you know, which swiveled. Oh, you know, it, it was really low, and you would just sort of lean back and swivel in the chair. Awesome. Is there a good chair to do science in? The Dick Cabot chair. Yeah. That's the Cabot, best kind of Cabot chair. Cabot, Cabot, Cabot. I feel like one of those uh, 70s egg chairs would be a good science chair, you know what I mean? Like one of those things, almost like what, what oh, yeah. Mork would get into with the, to talk with. Yeah, the, the half shells. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I should Makes try that. Makes me think of the beginning of Men in Black 1. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't Hardcore science it. movie? Yeah. <laughs> that was a documentary, right? That was a documentary yeah. about science, about what's out there. Um, it's also good, I've suddenly realized there's another good reason for being off-site today for the podcast and that's the current conflict you're having with your 
Oh, are we, should we be talking about that? God, oh. I don't know. I live with, I have a bizarre living it, situation. I think it's safe to talk about it on the show, given that they're, they're never having they, they a They probably with, don't listen. Well, he currently calls podcasts blogs. <laughs> whenever, <laughs> whenever we're recording, my 60-something roommate who lives in the pool house, Kato Kalin style, will walk by and say, have a good blog. So he was there when they were having lots of parties. Presumably. He's been there 20 years. There's another guy in his 60s who's been there 10 years, and they both have seniority, which I, I don't like the idea that like our landlord will side with them just because of the time spent. Like I, I'm still paying rent. Like I deserve to have the use of the house, but I like one of the guys... Like yeah. they won't let you in the kitchen or something? Well, no. One of the guys just leaves his door open all the time, like all the time when he sleeps at all hours because he has a cat... And uh, he claims if he leaves the cat food outside of the room, then the dog owned by the guy in the pool house will eat the cat's food. So he has to leave his door open, which means the whole bedroom, the whole house becomes his bedroom. I can't entertain in the living room because his door is just open to you his bedroom. You need to get a better animal that the animal outdoes that their animals. The, well, yeah. <laughs> there's a few different options. I could, like, I was thinking about if I just, I don't, I don't have to kill any animals. All I have to do is make the cat disappear and then a lot of these problems go away. So I was thinking about, I could just drive the cat somewhere, leave it. Cats, cats can fend for themselves. He'll be fine, you know? And then, <laughs> sort of should I not be, is this? <laughs> right now, Matt and I are exchanging. <laughs> <laughs> My life becomes a lot better if, if that cat just suddenly finds a new home. Uh, okay, I didn't just say that. Yeah, yeah I guess that's that's incriminating. You sort of blew your right. Yeah, I know you kind of blew his uh, <laughs> cover there. I mean, now into an alibi. I'm not suggesting killing any animals, just getting them out of the anyhow. So like we had, I, I had a few friends over just for a, a fire in the backyard late at night, and I took great pains to make sure everybody came and went via the side of the house. Didn't make any noise. Used my bathroom, uh, but then somebody stumbled drunk into the house, and there was an open door because he leaves his door open, and uh, and they continued to stumble through the open door. It's and That's stumble exactly over turn the lights and uh, it was true it was 4am it was a Friday night though it's not uh, crazy um, so then yeah I, I guess that was the last straw and he's been like building a case against me to the landlord and emailing all these transgressions including the podcast I didn't realize he so the landlord's t- and this is where you invited me to record today <laughs> <laughs> thanks guys but, really glad I didn't make that trip yeah traffic. well I think he would have been delighted to have you there so I think from now on I have to like send a preemptive text before every episode with our guest's pedigree but, so that it seems because he's been complaining to the landlord about the podcast but the landlord then thinks it's like a live show he's like yeah. how many people come and listen to this thing yeah the landlord asked me that he's like so tell me about this podcast thing like how many people are coming to watch this did thing? he I'm ask like, for what? a ticket <laughs> Yeah, I, he thinks you like putting on like live concerts in the back garden rather yeah. than just no. It's three people are talking talking to each other, just holding for an hour a week in the afternoon live about though. science. Live and I was about yeah. to say talking to a microphone, but then I realized if you know that little about how things work, you might think, oh, so it's amplified, right? So I think the now the new plan is to do it. No, it's three people talking into a tape recorder. That's what it is. That's our explanation. That's good. Yeah. That's as unscientific. You should and, add the rolling sound of the tape onto the exactly. Podcast. Yeah, and yeah. then we press play and record several times. Then we mail it out to our listeners. <laughs> it's a podcast zine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And if you don't forward it's it on to another... It's a Yeah. That's good. That's I wonder good. if anyone's done that. Like, do a pod zine. Can it be quite cool, actually, to do a podcast like the old on chain vinyl. mails? <laughs> to, to press it on, on 85 gram vinyl or whatever a number of grams would be for vinyl. But what yeah. if you did it on a, on a cassette tape and then just pass it to one person went, like, make six copies and send it to your friends and see how far your podcast could get? Like a Grateful Dead uh, tape trading circle or something? Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> have someone in the corner bootlegging our podcast. I'd be fi- if that's what it takes to not get me kicked out of the house. I'll do that. <laughs> like, okay, now we're using tape recorders. 
So yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it is for the best you didn't come over right now because we're in the middle of that conflict. I either have to move or uh, from now on give advance notice for any time anybody at all comes over to the house. <laughs> well, we're moving capacity. out in a week if you like this house. <laughs> I do. You know what? I'm it's coming. a very very nice house. My it's friends, very, you're in the worst room in the house. You have to go take a look around. It's yeah, really nice. No, I like it a lot, and I, I surf, and all my friends who surf who live on the west side can't believe that I would choose to live so far away from. Like as my friend Graham Elwood says, like what you you moved two thousand miles just to stop. 10 miles short like you, <laughs> yeah. you come here because of the water you, you want to move to the ocean you're not at the ocean yet you stopped for some reason so uh, maybe I will move out west at some point so Janet we always ask our guests this which seems like a ridiculous question given that it's you but um, what is your size background <laughs> well uh, <laughs> it's funny you know I actually uh, did not grow up like the super science geeky kid okay. I did not have the chemistry set in the basement and I thought even pretty deep into college I thought physicists memorized equations and built bombs so I was not sympathetic um, to the scientific disciplines and then I don't know what happened I, I guess I realized that that was false like I was projecting a stereotype on myself like right. I looked back and I thought actually I've always really liked science so it just never through- dawned on me that that's what it was called or okay. you know that it that it was that that's what you did when you were a theoretical physicist is you just had weird dreamy feelings about the cosmos <laughs> and you sat there and calculated things and I discovered I love math like okay. I went into a pretty mathy version of physics because you stick very much on the theoretical side of yeah things. I like pen and paper mathematical calculations that's what I like to do and um and so a lot of the times I have to struggle even to ask questions that are both relevant to real astrophysical problems and also soluble mathematically which is you know those problems have already been picked over so um so it's it's just sort of you have to have sort of a knack for finding those problems that people haven't already solved already and that can be solved analytically Um, but that is what i like to do how do you track down those problems well uh it's funny sometimes we um, we realize that people did the right thing, which is to say they go for the jugular, the simplest thing. So let's say uh, I'm interested right now in black holes colliding. So there will be a lot of work on what happens if there if two black holes are orbiting each other nearly on a circle, because that's the simplest orbit you could possibly think of. Right. And and then there's all this incredible work that's relevant for what happens. Space time starts ringing. You know, we can talk about all this. All this incredible stuff happens. Black holes collide. They make a new black hole. They calculate the ring down. All this stuff's been done. Then my group comes and we kind of look at the problem. and We realize, well, you know they might not just be on the simplest kind of orbit. What's the full possibility of what can happen when two black holes collide? And then we study the two black holes passing each other and getting caught on very complex orbits that fill three-dimensional space. They look like hairballs. They're really intricate. There's chaotic orbits. There's all kinds of things that can happen. There's a whole realm of dynamical like systems problems. It's really a, a game. It becomes a chaotic game at some level of how the black holes begin to orbit each other if you allow them away from that simple, simple solution and then we found a way in and you found oh my god he was stunned (laughs) (laughs) but he's smiling he's smiling it's good (laughs) i don't know what the response i'm also curious so if all this is theoretical then at some point when we develop a technology that allows us to um empirically test the things you come up with the hope is that they match what you've developed just on pen and paper or is that not? yeah absolutely so so empirically okay what do we really think is out there so do we really think that black holes fill all the space of possible things that they could on paper. You know, just because it happens on paper doesn't mean it happens Mm -hmm. in the universe. If you look at the solar system, the Earth's on a pretty circular orbit, you know, as are most of the planets around the sun. Mm -hmm. Right. Mercury is on a little bit of an ellipse, 
and you see that that ellipse overshoots each orbit and it's called a processing orbit. So if you were to trace that ellipse over time, it would it would make kind of a spirograph pattern and it would okay. it would overshoot. So each time it goes to its maximum, when it comes back around, it it's doesn't just, go back to the exact same point. It's, it's just a, a little bit further it's around. It's a little bit further around and if you do it enough times eventually it'll it'll, you know, trace a kind of a little um, ring around the sun. And that was first predicted by Einstein. So, I'm sorry, it was first observed, and it was the only observation that was not consistent with Newtonian gravity. So every observation in the entire universe was consistent with Newton's idea of gravity and Newton's mathematical expression for gravity, except this overshooting of uh, Mercury's orbit mm-hmm. and it overshoots and because astronomers are so compulsive and uh, anal retentive the, the, they measured an overshooting it's something like 43 seconds of arc if you can imagine what a degree is on the sky a second of arc is, is very very small fraction mm-hmm. of that and it's 43 seconds of arc per century wow. um, so it's a, it's a tiny um, uh, adjustment and they couldn't account for it with anything. But it could have been, I mean, Jupiter, you know, they tried correcting mm-hmm. for Jupiter's pull, or they tried everything. Some other celestial Some body other that we haven't seen yet, there's right. just extra gravity right. in there. Right. So Einstein, when he comes up with his theory of curved space-time, the first thing he does is he tries to correct Mercury's orbit using relativity. And he finds exactly the right procession for Mercury. And he says he has heart palpitations. You know, he's so excited. He can't stay calm for days. You know, he's walking around beaming. He's made his first match to the only observation that isn't Newtonian. And a lot of what we're doing now with black holes is kind of an extreme version of that. What we're looking at with black holes is orbits that are processions, but not around little ellipses. They're like processions around three-leaf clovers and four-leaf clovers and five-leaf clovers. Uh-huh. And that's because the black holes get so close together that this overshooting is so extreme that the first time it goes around, it might just make a two-leaf clover. And then it overshoots a tiny bit. And then it makes a two-leaf clover again. And then it overshoots a tiny bit. So, um, so that was really something that we were able to prove. And it's really beautiful correspondences with number theory. And it's, it's really neat stuff. Now, your, your question was, can you observe it? Mm-hmm. And um, we're hoping we can observe it with future um, experiments. But it might be that the universe chose the simplest option and everything's just on the circle like the Earth. <laughs> right. That there's no analog to the Mercury in the black hole orbits. And that'll suck for us. That'll be a real bummer, you know, because we know it's mathematically true, but we don't know that real astrophysical black holes will do it. Uh, and if not, way- you've got to work out why they don't or just by chance it doesn't? Yeah, well, it might be that that they just, when, when the black holes are colliding, they actually cause space-time to ring like a drum. And they're which, like mallets on a drum. Which was the subject of the TED Talk that you did that I oh, listened yeah, to. Oh, yeah, that's right. And uh, that's exactly the subject of the TED Talk. And we really, we make that analogy, as it did in the TED Talk, to sound. It's really like banging on a drum. And, and the, like a the drum is ringing. Yeah, it's like a vibration, on the, literally on the shape of space-time. So, so right now, those waves, those called gravitational waves, are passing through us. Mm-hmm. And you guys are being squeezed and stretched slightly. Only it's extremely, extremely slight. So slight that we can't perceive it. But we're building massive machines to try to pick it up. Mm-hmm. And that's the, am I right thinking, that's the reason why you're currently at Caltech? Yes. That's what's going on there. Yes. That experiment is called LIGO, and it's being built on Earth which sounds like a silly thing to say, but there is a space-based <laughs> mission that's been proposed. Um, LIGO is being built on Earth in, in uh, two major sites in the States. And um, it's a 
very big experiment um, and with 800 people internationally and, and that's going on. Caltech is really the mecca for that, Caltech and MIT. And so I came here to talk to those guys who are building the machine and, and, uh, and, and just to try to figure out how we can make predictions that are really relevant for what they'll detect. So what is it that, that like I was looking for? What is it it's trying to measure and how does it do that? So it's literally going to measure this banging drum. So, so I'll describe the detector in a second, but they literally have the detector plugged into speakers and they sit there and they listen to it in the control room. Okay. So wow. mostly it just sort of crackles because there's noise. You, there's noise. There's quantum noise. There's seismic noise. You know, people walk around and stamp and the machine vibrates and it makes a noise. And, and, and it's because it's measuring um, uh, vibrations eff- effectively. Right. Um, seismic vibrations. And then it, it plays it back as sound. So a lot like what we're doing, you know, we're, we're talking to these microphones. Um, and the little diaphragm and, is vibrating. Right. And, you know, the signal, the electronic signal gets recorded somewhere and somebody's going to play it back. And the waveform that was recorded is being played back as sound. Right. So this is, so people get really uptight about this. They say things like, you know, in space, two black holes collide. There's no sound in space. So it's not really sound. So it's not a sound wave. It's not a compression of air, but it is literally like a drum recorded in empty space. It's still uh, a periodic fluctuation in some medium. It's just right. not air. Well, it's it's you measure in space-time the, itself. Exactly. Or, you yeah. measure the flu- fluctuation. You you get an electrical signal to respond to that. It plays through an amplifier, and it comes back as sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you were near the black holes, you would literally hear them. Your ear would vibrate in the human auditory range for black holes of a certain size. Oh, but it's just, really? just because... Yes. Uh, but so would because the skin of your face. So would your fa- your whole body because you'd be yeah, pushed so your, and pulled gravitation. Your brain would right? be screwed. Yeah. You wouldn't be able to interpret the signals, right? Yeah. But in principle, you could get the the ear jump to vibrate in, in, res- in resonance. So in, in the same way that normally when you're in on Earth, when there's a noise, when someone's playing an instrument near you, that makes yeah. the air waves, that makes the air around you compress uh, in a certain rhythm and that makes your eardrum compress right. uh, in a certain rhythm. Right. Here it would here literally it would be gravity be, doing that. Here aspect. it would literally be the space would be changing shape and your body with it. <laughs> it wouldn't be good to have to hang out to wait for that. Yeah, the, the price you pay on your right. If you life heard ending. that, you kind of want to get out of there because you can't yeah. see the black holes, right? So the black holes are colliding. You can't see them because they're not emitting light or reflecting any light. But if you hear them banging together, you just you really want to get out of there. <laughs> and does it gravitational? I don't. I don't know much. I don't know anything about this. So I'm allowed to just act stupid. Yeah. Um, but do these gravitational waves just go out in spherical? Like concentric, uh, not necessarily, but but that's a good question. It, it it really depends exactly on the so just like a drum sound depends on the pattern of the mallets on the drum. Mm-hmm. The shape of the orbits of the black holes are like the mallets on the drum, okay. and the different shapes that they're executing as they orbit each other is like banging on the drum differently. Mm-hmm. So we expect to be able to hear the difference between these orbits effectively because they will cause space time to ring differently. So is is a lot of is your work connected to trying to work out what shapes of orbits would make which sounds? Uh, that was what I was doing for quite a while. Yes, exactly. So if you look on my website, you can play some movies back which will show different orbits and it'll play back the different sounds that they would make. And that's that website's uh, jan11.com. Yeah, on the so site. J a n n a l e v i n. That's it. Stop. And there's a science link there that has like different movies showing three different kinds of orbits and the different sounds that they would make. Um, and so that's what I was doing for a while. Right. So your original question was, how do you find that problem? You find that problem because other people overlooked it because they did the sensible thing, which was to go for 
the simplest one first. Right. Right. And kind of put aside all these really complex things about these complex orbits. Which is the standard way I think you go with science in general. Certainly remember when I was my limited undergraduate mathematics, when you're attacking a problem, the idea is you first of all strip it down to the simplest version. And then once you've solved that, you try and build it back up again. Definitely. You add in complexity. Definitely. And we did we did a similar thing, you know, which is we started to look at the simplest, um, what we call periodic orbits, orbits that fully closed, that didn't repeat after the simplest circle. And right. we found things like the two-leaf clover and the three-leaf clover and the four-leaf clover. And then from there, we realized that others process around them. So it is, it progress, and then it builds up. And um, that was one thing we did. You know, now we're doing other stuff. <laughs> Right. So, so we do that for a few years, we try to clean it up, and then we do other stuff. So if the testing, if the equipment actually ends up showing that they are just in simple circular orbits, will that actually yeah. change something fundamental about relativity or about what uh, we... Or- so, right. So it's a, it's, that's a really important question. What kind of astronomy can we do if we hear the gravitational waves? So let's say we make this detection. They've never been detected before directly. Mm-hmm. So, so this instrument is, uh, is this very complex machine. It's called an interferometer. And, um, there are other people who can explain it better, but it, it involves these four kilometer long arms and it's sending laser signals down the arms in an L shape. So you have two arms, each one's four kilometers, and it tries to measure the distance the light travels in the two directions. So if the light travels exactly four kilometers in both directions, no wave has passed. Mm. And if the light travels four kilometers plus or minus a fraction of a nucleus of an atom, which is literally <laughs> the detection they're making, then maybe one side got shorter and the other side got longer wow. and they can tell the difference at that level it's stunning and then be able to triangulate some sort of wouldn't you want three of them to be able to get some kind of spatial orientation or does it not uh, matter oh but, that's that's great with one machine they can only tell you it came from half the sky okay. they have no it's and it's the same way when your phone rings you're like where is it i can't find it you know it's just hard because you to, only have stereoscopic yeah it's hard to not, triangulate uh, sound uh, yeah, yeah. okay so but um but that's why they built more than one machine oh, okay. and there's also projects in europe and, and um and possibly Japan and um, possibly India, where they're going to um, move forward with trying to get exactly that triangulation so they can tell you where it came from in the sky. Okay. Wow. Um, but, But let's say they measure this difference and it comes back and they just hear these two black holes were orbiting each other on a circle and then they collide and they ring down to one big black hole. Um, what that tells you is, is the, about the formation of the black hole. So the mm-hmm. two black holes may well have been born together. We know lots of stars are born in pairs. Right. And then one will die and form a black hole if it's big enough. And then the other one might die and form a black hole if it's big enough. And, um, and in the process, the question is, is by the time they're, they're getting close enough that this banging is loud enough that we'll be able to hear it mm-hmm. on, um, at the Earth, um, have they just settled down to that circular configuration, like rolled down in some sense to the lowest, simplest energy? You know, you know when you throw those pebbles on those wishing wells mm-hmm. and they sort of settle down, sometimes you see they start to take the circular orbit. It's like the, it's like the low energy option. So all the energy drains away and it ends up in this. That's what it might, that's what it would mean is that we're only seeing these kinds of old, old pairs. Okay. And it will tell us that. But if we see some that are really not like that and are much more of the intricate kind that we think about, it might mean that they captured each other, that they were two black holes that lived separately, that found Found each each other in the galactic nucleus and caught each other into an orbit. That's a beautiful love story then. Yes, isn't it sweet? (laughs) They have about, I don't know. 
it can be months together before they collide if that happens as opposed to billions of years only wow. months that does seem pretty quick yeah do you reckon they know that their relationship's doomed from the start <laughs> yeah i'm sure they know all kinds of things <laughs> they're pretty simple systems they're like atoms where do you they're honeymoon really as a pair of black holes colliding together anywhere you the want the galactic <laughs> nucleus apparently <laughs> nucleus. so then once if you just had a single black hole it wouldn't be emanating uh no sounds quote-unquote any kind of periodic fluctuate it would just be a constant yes even if it's force, spinning um, even if you have a black hole that's spinning that's just sitting by itself mm-hmm. it's totally stable Okay. It could it could sit there forever. So we wouldn't detect any direct. There's no way to to. to have we actually? This is a stupid question. Also, have we actually had conclusive evidence of black holes' existence yet? Or it's a great it's, question because if somebody's listening to this, aren't they going to want to ask that question? Okay, but maybe I mean, that's something that I question. should know as yeah, a person with a science. You got to be fair podcast. to your audience. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, we have very uh, powerful evidence for the existence of black holes, both mm-hmm. black holes that are kind of like tens of times the mass of our own sun, and also those that are millions and billions of times the mass of our own sun. So if you look at the center of our galaxy, people watched stars orbiting the center of our galaxy over 16-year time periods, and now longer. And they watch the orbit that they take, and they can deduce, even just using Newton's laws is a good enough approximation, how how massive that object is that it's orbiting mm-hmm. and you can see how big it is uh, because the orbit it has to be smaller than the orbit that the star is on and that thing has the density of a black hole so whatever it is it's four million times the mass of the sun and it's uh, not emitting light and it is tiny for something yeah. that big and similarly we see um, we see black holes that are like cannibalizing their their um, neighboring stars Mm-hmm. And so we see all of this matter literally just splattering being down, being sucked into something, and you can deduce the mass and the size of that object, and it's really tiny. You can't go and look at a black hole. You can't yeah. do that. And there are experiments, I mean, observations where people want to measure the shadow a black hole would cast. I mean, that would be the most beautiful thing you could possibly hope to do. What does that mean? So imagine there's a black hole between us and some very bright part of the galaxy. Okay. You would literally just see a shadow because all the light that went within that shadow would fall in. And right. since no light is emitted um, from the black hole directly, it would literally just be this dark circle on the sky. You might see lensing, you know, because it, it creates this curving in space. I was going like, to say, some light would sort of, some light would kind of travel. We would kind right. of be able to see things that were behind it, wouldn't we? Because some light gets bent, literally bent yes. around. If, if you've got fantastic resolution, you could see the lensing. It's called lensing. It's right. literally, you've warped the, the, the space, so therefore light's taking a bent path, and just like through a lens, it looks warped. So something behind might look smeared and warped, just as though you took a glass prism and looked at it. And that, there, is a, there is a project called Event Horizon Telescope to, to try to do that for supermassive oh. black holes. Because they got to be big. So a black hole, the mass of the sun would only be about six kilometers across. Uh, okay, six kilometers find. across. So that, at a great distance, is just you're not you're not going to see anything. Okay, right. but, but what, what what would the um, the point? I guess that the term event horizon is the point at which uh, light does crash exactly. into it, right? Is exactly. That, so how much bigger than that six kilometer? sphere with that the event horizon is this is the radius that people are talking about so so when people say a black hole six kilometers across they just mean the event horizon if you went up to that radius there's Mm -hmm. nothing there so this is what freaks people out about six kilometers across there's no there's no actual there's no surface there it's all fallen into (laughs) everything's fallen in so you go up to what's called the radius of the black hole and there's not there's no 
atmosphere. There's no surface. There's no rock. It's just a curve in space. You just would fall across it. I never knew that. I think yeah. I still thought there was some super yeah. dense rock in the middle. Or as something. far you know, as far as we know, there's it just all disappears wow. down the throat of the black hole. Wow. So if you went further in again, would that like what happens to the actual physical matter, the, the atoms, the It is a huge and profound question because when we look at Einstein's curved space-time theory and we ask what is the logical consequence for the matter that falls inside, mathematically the answer that comes back is that it falls into a singularity, which is just this region of infinite curvature and energy and it's a mess down there. And and nobody really believes singularities exist. So at the very, very, very center, people say, this is just wrong. And there must be something that calls on quantum gravity because because you're so high energy now, the curvature is so big, you should really be doing quantum mechanics as well as gravity. And so you have this collision of quantum gravity where you say Einstein's theory can't be the whole story, but the singularity is resolved. And there's some, so maybe there's some quantum remnant that's tiny. And that's where all the matter lands. But um, people don't really know. And this is, this is a huge controversial area. What does a quantum remnant mean? Or what it- well, so, I mean, we can talk about Hawking radiation a little bit because it's relevant for Hawking radiation. That, do you want to yeah. try this? Let's do this. Okay, crack this your re- knuckles. This relates I want to hear some knuckle. Yeah. <laughs> I cracked my knuckle, did you hear? That you actually good. did? That was a legitimately good <laughs> knuckle crack. I'm going to go back and post and see if I can amp that up so the audience can hear it because it was close to the mic. Um, so... Hawking became very famous for this very brilliant thing that he did. So so you look at this idea of the event horizon, which says nothing can escape the event horizon. Not even light can, can escape. You can think of it as though light, even traveling at its limiting speed, is falling in faster exactly at the horizon. You could literally place a little photon, a little bundle of light at the event horizon, and it would just sort of sit there. But if you tapped it, it would fall in. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's going at the speed of light, but it's like the space time's dragging it in at the speed of light, right at that boundary. Okay. So nothing comes out. Um, And uh, Hawking did this very subtle calculation. He said, you know, quantum mechanics suggests that even in vacuum, in totally empty space, which is what you would have at the event horizon, because there's no, no object there. Right. In totally empty space, that particles and antiparticles are created and and it's just part of the uncertainty principle do you remember learning the uncertainty principle there's some probability of violating energy conservation as long as you do it very quickly is one way of stating the uncertainty principle people usually say it as if i measure the momentum of a particle i no longer know its position right but you can also say if i try to measure the energy particle i also crudely speaking don't know how long for it's been in this energy state. I mean, there's some way of saying it like that. So you can you can create these particles, but they kind of drop back out again. It's called virtual particles. They get created, and then they pop back out again. But what Hawking reasoned is that right near the horizon, one particle would escape to infinity if it was right outside the horizon, but the other one would get sucked back in. And now... Okay, so... Now you have something emitting at infinity... And something falling into the black hole, but the thing falling in is actually making the black hole lighter. And you can prove that that's what would happen. It would actually, it's like it has negative energy almost. That and it makes finally makes sense. So it's almost like if you, balance, if you balance a ball on the very, very peak, on the very, very tip of a pyramid. Yes. It'll fall down either one side or the other. Right. Now blow it into two pieces. 
Right. One falls one way, one falls the other. So in this case, so if, if this particle-antiparticle pair that just appears and would normally instantly disappear again, yes. or almost instantly disappear yes. again, but if it forms at the exact the equivalent of the tip of the pyramid, the very exact boundary, right. where on one side it's inside the black hole, or inside the event horizon, and the other side it's outside. Right. One particle gets sucked into the black hole, the other half, the other particle is free to disappear off into space. Escapes to infinity. That's right. So an observer far away could see a particle, which is what we call Hawking radiation. It could see the black hole radiate a particle. But in the process, the black hole gets lighter. That's the first time that's ever made sense to me. Woo! Okay. Excellent. And when you say it gets lighter, that... By lighter, you just mean radiation is emitted from the thing. Right. Which is what light is, I guess. Right. Oh, I thought you meant its mass gets decreased because an antiparticle it's, went its into it. Its mass gets decreased. Well, it doesn't have to be. An antiparticle has regular mass. So this is also oh, so point how, of So confusion. you actually do mean like less mass, like it's, physically lighter. Right. So so this is this is t- this requires... So when I teach this, mm-hmm. for instance, in a general relativity class, I have to be... This is the point, which is always a point of confusion. Particles and antiparticles have real mass. Both of them have real positive mass. If you make an antiparticle in the laboratory, it costs you energy. It has real positive mass. The antiparticle could be the thing that escapes to infinity. And the particle could be the thing that falls in. The universe doesn't care if it's an electron or a positron. The universe doesn't favor electrons over positrons, for instance. They just have opposite quantum numbers. But they both have positive mass. So, But what happens at the event horizon of a black hole, this is kind of screwed up. And so I'm going to say it, and it might not make a lot of sense, but I'm going to say it. The way I like to think of it is that at the event horizon, space and time sort of switch places. And um, an energy is like a time component of a momentum. So what One happens <laughs> is it, what happens just is that I'll say it and then we'll, we'll backtrack. Is that the thing that falls in? It actually um, it looked like energy on one side, but it looks like momentum on the other side. So it really just has negative momentum, but it's decreasing the energy. It that's that's not easy. That I would actually prefer to do with math. Yeah. So and I and and this is one of the things where the math really is helpful. I can show you how to calculate energy. I can show you how to calculate momentum. I can show you that they trade places inside the event horizon. And so when you're saying you're decreasing the energy or the mass of the black hole, it really it really has to do with absorbing a negative momentum. But but that's because space and time switch places at the event horizon. Now I just sound like a crazy person, no, no, but that is trying, actually trying. the technical explanation. I sound like one of those crazy letters that I get from people, you know, where they just string <laughs> fancy words together. Oh, you and then the a... tachyon goes into the negative eigenstate. You know, it's just like random you words. You must get... Because also the, the stuff, the, the things you specifically work in... Mm-hmm. You hit almost every buzzword that's used by pseudoscientists. Absolutely. <laughs> like your your it's exact so unfortunate. Work is quantum vibrations <laughs> energy. <laughs> like it's just all I need to add is like soul. Yeah, exactly. S O L E. I don't know if you guys know this, but if you sing to a jar of water while it's freezing, the ice crystals will form oh, happy. God, did you watch that movie? <laughs> that movie. I was from, I was living in so Portland. Angry. I was living in Portland at the time and it was everyone it was that movie like all of your friends were like have you seen this yet? Because it was even filmed part of it in Portland. I don't I even know. know what movie this at was. At the Baghdad Can Theater. Can you imagine what happens when you have a degree in physics from MIT and people 
people ask you, have you seen that movie? And then, they stare you in the eyes, waiting <laughs> for you to tell them something. And when, I, when my friends were like, you're a science guy and you're going to like this movie, afterwards I was like, I don't know if I can stay friends with those people. Like, <laughs> I feel so bad. The, the you're talking gonna lose, heads, You're going to lose listeners. <laughs> <laughs> the talking heads would like, they wouldn't even give them their titles till the end of the movie. So you thought that everybody had an equally valid point. And then yeah. you find out some of these are actual scientists and some of these are Ramtha, the person who's channeling the long dead spirit of an That's Atlantis right. warrior. <laughs> What is this yeah. movie called? It's called What the Bleep Do We Know? Oh, Marley Matlin. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Some woman once told Warren, my husband, um, that she could channel the wind or something or the the rain or something like that. And he was like, yeah, it's a real shame you weren't there for that whole, you know, tsunami thing. <laughs> <laughs> she was so Where were pissed. you there? Yeah. <laughs> Dropping the ball. <laughs> Wow. So you did walk me through your experience seeing that movie. Did you see it in the theater? Or did you see it at home? No, I saw it at it? home just like you because it was foisted on me. And um, I thought, oh, okay, maybe this is really fascinating. And I just felt so angry because it was very clearly about some self-help right. thing. Yeah. And it was, I think what bothers me the most is, is the lack of critical thinking. Like if people have a spiritual bent and they want to go that way, it's really none of my business. Mm-hmm. Fine. But, but I just really resent the lack of critical thinking. Like do people really think that, that some spirit from Japan put an English word on a like, piece of paper? I don't even remember the yeah. construction. It's just so, just just think it through. Right, right. Think it through. You know? but how did that, how did quantum become the buzzword for all these like macro level things to which it doesn't really apply? Like, I think that- it's classic God of the gaps. It's the hardest thing to understand, just like that wacky explanation I just gave you about why a, a particle can have positive mass on one side of the event horizon, but look like negative mass on the yeah. other side of the event horizon. It's the hardest thing to understand. So it sounds like an easy place to invest your spirituality. It's God of the gaps. This is something that's not understood, at least not by me. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm yeah. going to believe that that's where God resides. And I think that's unfortunate. I think if I were God, I'd be really offended. <laughs> You're relegated, <laughs> wedge. To these, yeah, yeah. relegated to this ever decreasing wedge of, you know, knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think there's also g- some, do you think because it's complicated, you can instantly sound like you have some authority if you quote a few of these words because with confidence? Because to you would That's all I'm doing. And look at you guys. You guys are <laughs> looking at me in awe. She's a it's professor. <laughs> the thing is, you're not I, even... I'm not... Yeah, we're, we're going to make you show you're working before we leave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I'm going to be like, one plus one. There's yeah. a chalkboard in here we've been working on the whole... We're, we'll post a picture on the on, blog later. I do post I pictures of my chalkboard s- sometimes. I always get eight sevens and nine sixes mixed up. So <laughs> You guys, right? Is this a nine or a six? Do you... Like, like do you... You use a when you're when you're physically like doing the work. Do you just scribble on a piece of paper? Do you have a big board in your office? That you- I, I prefer to scribble on a piece of paper. We always hit the board when we're collaborating and explaining things to each other. Right, whiteboard or chalkboard? I like a chalkboard. Really? I do not like a whiteboard. Yeah, and um, we really have these preferences. The, yeah, just those possible sounds that can come out of it. You know, the I, old-fashioned ones like Columbia has some of these are pressed green glass. And wow. they're so smooth and creamy, and they are <laughs> unbelievable. Like you, there is no squeaky, chalky, gross sound. Oh, okay. It's the painted ones that have you know a little tooth to them. The low budget ones. Yeah. See, yeah. I, this is kind of this you is important like a, to me. Yeah, you become like a chalkboard connoisseur. <laughs> yeah, totally, absolutely. I, you, I know you briefly. I, when I was at Cambridge, we we moved. We were just discussing this the other day. We just got, we moved into the 
the new math department yeah which looked like yes. the teletubby house because it yeah. had it was this eco building that had <laughs> grass over the top of this dome it did but they had i wonder how that grass is doing i don't know it looked like it would be hard to maintain it but it's hard to i mean england's green yeah, yeah, it's probably it's doing all right. Damp. It's get your rainy area on the, yeah, it's on the fence. Rain. It's sure it's beautifully green. I just listened to your moth, not not to uh, sidetrack, but I listened to your moth story on the way over here also, which yeah. was great about your uh, travails back to, about you and your then boyfriend going back to England, even though he's from there and hated the idea of going back. Oh, yeah. Back. And he particularly hated Cambridge, sadly. Right. Oh, yeah. Cambridge. It's, it's dreary very, over there. It gets dark really dreary. early. It's, it's very yeah. dreary. Yeah. It really is. Can't be. I heard a bit of protectiveness there <laughs> i mean i enjoy my time there but i can see that yeah but i was gonna say like they that every surface they when they moved into the new department there were every like door had a whiteboard or a blackboard on yeah. it it was um yeah like every every corridor had at least somewhere that if two mathematicians bumped into each other and had an idea they right. could just write just it down start. immediately <laughs> yeah and at oxford they had glass walls where you would just write on your glass wall which right. was actually really nice i liked that I it's like kind that. of got a goodwill hunting sort of vibe to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, it was or, good. It was good. Or a social network, I guess. Is that when yeah. he's like writing on, on this window so that it just looks good on camera? I thought that was, was goodwill the... hunting. Or maybe it's that. I and know. I think there was, was a real mathematician whose hand it was. And I think he's from Columbia. Oh, really? Columbia <laughs> mathematician had to be the hand. Oh, they got someone wrote... to just write out. Yeah, to write, write on the us. window. Yeah. Do you, exactly. do you when you're watching movies that have uh, scientificy things in the background that aren't the focus of the story? Do you ever pause to like see if there's anything valid that's on the chalkboard? If you found know, somebody to actually put up something that was, it's so funny. Sometimes they're pretty good about that now. They yeah. get that right. It's like you know people don't use Chinese characters that are made up. Do you know right, what I mean? Yeah. People, it's not people that hard to find harder. someone for an afternoon yeah. who can. There is exactly. a lovely website. I don't know if it's been updated recently, uh, but it is. It's it is completely safe for work, but it's called Blackboards in Porn. <laughs> and it's where and it's oh where they've taken like freeze frames from <laughs> like pawns that are pornos that are set in a sexy in teacher schools exactly that and they sort of Get zoom in on the, they here. zoom in on the blackboard and analyze how accurate and advanced the work is on that that is hilarious somebody sent me a new yorker cartoon which is a blackboard full of equations and two scientists in lab coats like collapsed on the floor smoking <laughs> nice <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Jesse and I were just talking about our roommate problems. My comedian roommate, Jesse Case, sometimes mm-hmm. our third host of the show. Uh, and he was talking about how we should rent out our house to porn. We live in the valley and they're, they're always <laughs> looking for sh- like places to shoot. And you can get like $1,000 a day for six hours. All you have to do is just leave your house for six hours and not ask what happened. I you think know? you have to come back and disinfect. <laughs> yeah, you have to do that. But uh, I think then, worse know, things could... happen in that building oh, anyway. Oh, yeah, I'm <laughs> sure. It's seen many worse things like, than that. I think, yeah. Maybe you guys could like do a science porn company or right? something like as There's an option market for that there yeah. are a few, i think there are a few there are a few porn performers who have legitimate science background <laughs> yeah, there's one i, I saw this I documentary next guest. yeah, yeah. Well, there's I, I, there's a Netflix documentary called After Porn Ends. It's just interviewing people who left the business, mm-hmm. and uh, it's pretty interesting because it doesn't have any real agenda. Like, it's there are some people who are. I find the ones so that, after the ones porn that are ends for the performers for the rather performer. than after porn ends in general. It's not about <laughs> some a lot of people like that, the lawn. Like that evening. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> just going out for a drink um, right. <laughs> no but the people who did it back in the early days are all pretty well adjusted because it wasn't this crazy industry which just churns people out like it was kind of just this fun thing I think in like the 70s that people did mm-hmm. who now have families and are stable but then the people who did it and since then it's just you know it ruins everyone's life but there is one performer who's but I think pri- the same thing you said about acting like it just I mean like you're you're your roommates were walking example of that. He was well, he wasn't important. He was in soaps, <laughs> like he was in daytime TV. But he, uh, 
It's just whenever you have any career like that, that sort of it's you fleeting. Up. You're not going to bu- budget your money well, probably. Yeah, I think there are people who do porn and budget their money well, or, or progress into f- adjacent industries or completely different ones with money. Yeah. And there are people who just go in thinking this is going to last forever, and then realize it doesn't. <laughs> Look, yeah. I'm a college professor and I can't budget. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look at this house. <laughs> what do you mean? This is great. Exactly. That's the problem. I'm a college professor. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is six months worth This is of- not a budget a college professor should be adhering to. <laughs> oh, you're, I see what you're saying. I thought you were saying, like, these porn people should just go into college professorry. No, I'm, I'm saying it's kind of, easy to spend your money. It's easy to live yeah. past your means. Yes, yeah. exactly. I thought you were saying, this is how good a college professor I am. Look around. <laughs> this is what theoretical physics you know, got that me. that actually is true at Columbia. I hate to say this, because we all sort of live in housing provided by the university. So sort yeah. of your, you can... You can evaluate how much the university thinks of you by how nice your apartment Whoa. is. <laughs> yeah. Interesting, like, yeah. yeah. Like if you win a Nobel Prize, you get an extension. You get, you get a better apartment, right? <laughs> you get another room. Yeah. You get a southern exposure and you're living in, yeah, there's a bigger deck, gas grill. So oh, you just, you're like, you're trying to get into your own apartment and the door's locked. <laughs> right. you the key's been changed. Yeah. You lose your job, you lose your house. It's absolutely true. Really? Yeah. I guess, yeah, that makes sense. But then, so everyone's just living, everyone's uh, saving lots of money. Well, I shouldn't, no, I'm guessing they're not making a lot of money, right? Or yeah. in general. What, I don't know how else, that works. What other topics level. we got? Yeah, sorry, sorry, let's not go down that road. I didn't mean to make it about, we talked about money, we've talked about porn, we've talked yeah. about black holes. What Politics, else is there? Politics, no, no. God, we've, got, we've talked about religion. Wait, but we, we didn't pick- do the remnant inside the black hole. Should we finish that or do you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or do you guys, did you guys hate that linearity? Am I just like, no, no. no I, actually, is- I wanted to go back to the first thing about Mercury's orbit and see if you could give me an intuitive explanation for that because I still don't really understand what why relativity changes that. But oh. do finish, let's finish this oh, first. Oh, I can kind then- of give you a quick explanation for why relativity. Let me think of how to say this. Okay, so relativity... So imagine you draw a a circle. Mm -hmm. Okay, so like um, you have an outer radius, let's say, and then it goes down to zero, right? So you say that that radius tells you that the circumference of the circle is 2 pi r around, Mm -hmm. right? In relativity, the distance inside that circle can be longer, right, than what you would say... uh, 2 pi times this radius so that makes the circumference, you would say, in some sense, it looks like it's shorter all the way around, given how long it is on the inside. Now, now that might freak you out, but imagine drawing something on a curved surface. Let's say you look at a bugle or like an old gramophone and think of how the horn part uh, okay. can be a certain circumference, but you have a long distance down. The radius the, along the curve of the horn. Along the curve of the horn, back to the tip of the horn, is much, much longer. And, the, and in some sense, unrelated outsides. to the distance uh, on the outside. More related to the curvature of the object than it is to the radius on the outside. Because it's just not flat. So it's okay. like the sun is pulling at space-time, like the way the horn's uh, exactly. so the sun's being curved, extruded or whatever. Yes, the sun has curved the space-time around it. So something which is trying to go some circumference around the sun... Uh, might be traveling a longer distance to the sun, mm-hmm. swooping around really fast, and then going a longer distance out. And therefore, uh, it swooped around so fast that by the time it made it out again, it had overshot. And that's because, in some sense, it was shorter around the circle than you would have thought from the length it had to travel. It's not a perfect analogy, but it gives you a feeling. Yeah. Does that give you an intuition? And, and, that does, and like Kepler's laws, that's Newtonian. That doesn't take any of this into account. Those right. kind of planetary Kepler's, motions. Kepler's uh, laws say that every orbit around the sun is an ellipse. 
a circle is a kind of an ellipse. It's the simplest uh-huh. kind of an ellipse. In the same way a square is a kind of rectangle. Yeah, exactly. And, but this processing uh, ellipse is not governed by It's not by an Kepler's actual ellipse. Laws. It's not closed. Right. So in Kepler's right, laws okay. say every orbit would be a perfectly closed ellipse. It's the only possibility you have from Kepler's laws. And Kepler's laws are totally rooted in Newtonian gravity. And the closer you get to the sun, that's why Mercury the is the one that... The closer you get to the sun, the stronger a bend you feel. So when you're going around the circumference really fast, because in some sense it's shorter around than you might have expected if the space wasn't curved. And so on your way out, you've overshot. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, that, so that when you have answer. a black hole, so the sun's a big object, right? When, when you take something in the mass of the sun and you crunch it down to six kilometers across, which is just, again, the event horizon, but if you get any closer, you fall in. Mm-hmm. So you're outside that region if you don't fall in. So you come in close enough, but not six kilometers you know outside the six kilometers around now you're going really fast the space is really curved and now you've really overshot like maybe you came in from one direction and you've gone totally 180 degrees in the opposite direction on your way out and so that when you come back in again and go out again you've made what looks like a two-leaf clover okay i think i kind of get it i'm not going to say i totally get it again this is you know on the airwaves it's harder we could do this on paper it's definitely easier for you to look at an animation of right. exactly how it works. Right. And if some people like to draw the black hole as one of those buglehorn things, you know, the... Because so, that's how I've, I've seen general relativity explained right. um, explained quite simply in the past by imagine, by someone demonstrating like a rubber sheet right. and putting heavy things like the sun or heavy right. objects right. on the rubber sheet so it... Curves it. So it bends down. So it, right. sort of, so it makes like a throat and it makes like a horn shape. Yep. Right. So that you can imagine now you're going deep around the horn and it's shorter there than you thought it was going to be. And then you come back out again mm-hmm. to the to the flatter part of the horn. So it's, it's like rolling out. a marble around like along that rubber sheet that yes. now has a heavy object sunk into the middle of it. Exactly. And that's that's really a beautiful, beautiful realization. So Einstein said, you know, th- the sun isn't pulling on the earth. It's not touching the earth after all. That's really weird. What's the sun doing having any effect on the earth when it's so far away from it? What the sun's doing is it's curved the space time and the earth is simply falling completely freely along this curve. So it's still taking the shortest, most direct it is, route yes. between these two points. Yes. It's, it's just now space time is curved. So that's the right. shortest route. Exactly. It, so is it possible to, is, is gravity itself then just a, a bend in space time? And if so, then gravity why is space time. So you really say, I no longer want to think of gravity as a force between two objects. Mm-hmm. I want to think of it as a space-time. And a curve in space-time is created by matter and energy. And things respond to matter and energy by falling along those curves. Then I guess, why, why don't the standard laws governing gravitation govern it at all scales then it seems like it would it's hard to even... well it does it's just that you mean why doesn't newtonian gravity work at or all just scales, the, you know the, the, the equation that's like the square of the, yeah. the distances and the squares and the inverse well that, because that... it's 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 uh it's a really good question it's because it's not um uh actually right <laughs> Okay. At any scale, okay. but you don't you see don't the correction, the okay. right? Until you have things that are so heavy, so Newton's that you really laws notice. Are, are just a phenomenal approximation to the exactly. Truth. That makes more sense. They're a okay. phenomenal approximation. At the scales we're usually looking at, they work exactly. just fine, but they're exactly. not actually correct. They work just fine, except for Mercury. Right. right. <laughs> okay. And and um, and that's why Einstein was able to find the correction to Mercury because all he did is said, "Oh, I just have a little wee perturbation to Newtonian gravity at that scale because mm-hmm. these." Things aren't that massive and that dense. And so he just found the little correction. And when he did the calculation, it came out exact. Yes. 
He was a pretty sm- I'm, I'm, getting, I'm starting to get the feeling this was a pretty sharp guy, this Einstein guy. And he was no Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> you know that he said that about himself. Really? He said, when I was a student, I was no Einstein. <laughs> I didn't even oh, know if he yeah. ever lived for his name. jokes. <laughs> <laughs> That's surprising because I didn't realize in his own lifetime, his name had already become synonymous with genius. Yes, he like, I thought maybe so- that was after... He was so famous. And I think that's really interesting. It became so famous. And it wasn't just because of the science. I think it was also because of the wars. And it was also because the hair. of the hair <laughs> and the mustache. <laughs> yeah, you've got to have a good look. You got, yeah. He's got I mean, Stephen look. Hawking's had... <laughs> he do, he has, Stephen Hawking has a lot of presence. Yep. He has a lot of charisma. <laughs> Didn't he... Does, he still uses the same voice and he's even... Like, he could do whatever voice he wants now right and he, yeah, he wants mean, to stick with that just for continuity right like i guess he, so the technology's improved but he i had this vague for. memory of he, him saying something like he wanted a british accent and then i guess he just got acclimated to the american voice yeah yeah she pointed out that's because he's british not just because it has more authority yes exactly <laughs> well as, as every scientist gets sufficiently along in their career and gets more intelligent they do start to natural, it's a natural outcropping of your intelligence that you get a by the way where is your accent Jenna? notice where my is... very honking american accent i love that when i left england i had exactly this accent i was didn't do i the was Madonna. unperturbed didn't, no. uh, that's good although i can put one on occasionally but i will not I will not do so. Did you ever <laughs> fall into it when, you, when, you're, when you're in a bar over in England? Did you fall into it sometimes? Oh, just occasionally, a bit? just because people sometimes don't understand you. Oh, okay, you right. Have to. If and you you're say butter, to guy as well. you say butter, and I'm married to an English guy, and we don't understand each other at all. But that's because yeah. we're married. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, you get into a cab and you say something. It's just a lot easier to get where you're going. And you say, "I want, to, I want to go to Hackney." You know. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. And then that's far too posh an accent to go to Hackney. Yeah, that's true. I can't do an East End accent. Actually, I've yeah. been working on my others, but my East End is not good. Um, my Cockney. We we don't have much time before we need to wrap this up. But what there was one other thing you were going, one other piece oh, of yeah, puzzle you going to explain to us. Oh, so for the Hawking radiation, because we're talking about the remnant. So ordinarily, you know, a physicist might say, "Look, if I can never observe what's on the inside of the black hole, I don't care if there's a singularity or not. I don't care if the singularity is real. I don't care if there's some other quantum remnant because I'll never know because it's trapped forever." inside the surface this event horizon and and so it's just not even a physical question it's meaningless to me and i love that attitude about physicists i love that you know brutal severity of just wanting to know what's real you know i love that but once you have hawking radiation now the black hole can evaporate and that means that one day even the event horizon will disappear the black hole will get lighter and lighter and lighter until it's no longer in a black hole with an event horizon there might be no mass there at all even though this is happening like a particle at a time yeah and so if the black hole can evaporate away its mass it can evaporate away its event horizon and then you're going to be able to look inside and see what's there so either all of that stuff that fell in um went into the singularity and the singularity also disappears or there's a remnant left over and then there's a lot of confusion about, well, what happened to all that quantum information? Like, did it just get crushed out of the universe? Because people don't like that. That doesn't sound good. And so there's this whole information loss crisis paradox. Um, did the somehow the information get out? What happened to it? So this is a really hotly debated um, area of pure theoretical physics. This is obviously beyond astrophysics. This mm-hmm. isn't what do we observe? What are real black holes doing? This is what do black holes as gravitational objects as like fundamental particles in some sense tell us about the fundamental laws of gravity and and quantum mechanics. And so um, 
yeah, so it's it's a really important debate that's still going on. So we don't have any reason to believe any black hole has evaporated yet and the time scale it would take. Or what? So black holes that form by stellar collapse, where we really have stars that form and form by stellar collapse, there's no way they could have evaporated. There wouldn't uh, be enough time in the, the age of the universe for it there's to happen no, yet. There's nowhere near enough time in the age of the universe. Plus, we know that there's radiation left over from the Big Bang that's that's still out there, and they're absorbing more radiation than they could possibly I was going to say, it's, oh, absor- okay. it's also presumably absorbing particles and physical objects like you know even things that fly past in space that get trapped by its gravity right so so there's that that they they're going to accrete more stuff from other stars and from the center of the galaxy for wherever they are they're probably going to accrete more stuff but even if it's sort of sitting out there by itself and only very rarely does something get close enough that it falls in even then it's got the background radiation that it's submerged and it's going to absorb that so but we don't know that black holes weren't formed tiny ones called primordial black holes weren't formed in the big bang so it's okay. conceivable that black holes were formed in the Big Bang and that they were tiny and that they evaporated very quickly. And so I don't know if you remember when the Large Hadron Collider was being built, there was... Uh, Every, there was talk of it might form some Big Bangs. <laughs> right, like, they tried to get injunctions. In we're all yeah. going to die. <laughs> Those animations were awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not impossible, actually, that theoretical physicists discuss the real possibility that at the Large Hadron Collider, you would make p- these little black holes. Right. They just suggest... You know, they do the calculations. They're not being... Cavalier and mm. and and everything we understand says they would evaporate incredibly quickly and it would be impossible for them to grow. So um, that doesn't seem to happen, and that just means that if you make black holes, you need way 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 more energy than you get at the Large Hadron Collider. I should also say for those people listening who did not feel very reassured by that explanation <laughs> that we just calculate some stuff and we think we're right, <laughs> that we know that there are particles that hit the Earth's atmosphere that have as much energy as you get at the Large Hadron Collider. And um, and it, and then they don't make bl- little black holes that destroy the universe. And therefore, at the same energy scale, you're not going to make them at the Large Hadron Collider. But what if you open a hell mouth? What if <laughs> yeah. you accidentally open a gate to hell? Yeah, I think that, that would be in what the bleep. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> You're not as worried about that. <laughs> I never nice. said what bleep stood for. <laughs> yeah, that could be like a whole podcast. Like That's the mystery. Like suggestions for what bleep yes what the bleep does what the bleep mean (laughs) it's like the great thing about that title is it could be read sarcastically or seriously depending on what you take of well there's an actual an answer the answer to that question is not very much i think the sad thing was it was the most high selling or most profitable documentary that had like ever been made oh. until the penguin one <laughs> <laughs> i was so happy the penguins beat him at out. least that yeah that's that doesn't have a lot of uh, people trying to channel atlantean spirits in it at least the penguins yeah. are amazing i mean seriously yeah they're yeah, amazing yeah. have you ever seen them huddle against the wind and the, <laughs> and the sleet and the Dip snow and they evaporate it's, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like people huddling in the new york subway system yeah. I mean, trying to block out the snow so that's so. If you take nothing away from this podcast, don't watch What the Bleep Do We Know. Do watch March of the Penguins and go to gen11.com for. And you said there are there are some videos on on your site that explain some of these things. And, yeah, it has some yeah. videos, and I think the TED Talk's up there, and I think the Moth Talk might be up there. Maybe not. Maybe Either the Moth way, Talk. Can, maybe the Moth Talk's not up there. We'll have I guess links I should to rectify that, that on when we post this episode on okay. on our site. Yeah, we'll have do links check those out because you get to to hear some of the things that uh, that Jana was talking about. Some of the actual. The ring projected of the, sounds of what they what they could be. The black holes banging on the drum of space time. Yeah, fingers crossed. A couple more years, and we'll actually get that. By the way, I, sh- I should just say that that 
detector has been in development for decades. Oh, really? So I don't want you to think this was simple. So we're two, three years out, and that that's imminent You're saying by this the time scale. That started was it in the sixties. In some sense, the first um, the first people who started projects similar to to this one were uh, that was in the sixties, and then this project, which was really initiated by people like Kip Thorne at Caltech and um, Ray Weiss um, at MIT, that was the late seventies. It really started. Jeez. Mm-hmm. So it's taken that long to even to. It's taken that long to build an instrument that's sufficiently that it could measure such tiny variations in the shape of space. Yeah, incredible. And we're close to. I mean, we're within a few years of its completion. We're at advanced um, design sensitivity. So right now they're replacing like the guts of the machines um, oh. with with the advanced mechanisms, and um, it has to do with mirrors and lasers and things. And um, I sound like such a theorist. It has to do with like, mirrors and lasers and stuff. And, uh, and you know, 2015 is a good projected date. So is it possible that in the next two years, someone could, uh, like, trip and fall, spill their coffee onto something? A truck ruin- ran into one of the arms once, you know, because they're in the middle of nowhere. And some security guards driving along in the darkness in the middle of nowhere and just Bam! What are you? Oh, but I just crashed into science. He, cra- <laughs> <laughs> he just man confronts science. He just crashed into the tunnel, but apparently there was no damage to the vacuum. You know, the tunnel is is evacuated. I think it's one of the best vacuums in the entire universe. Better like than a Dyson. The fewest <laughs> particles. So it's better than it being in space. Yeah. It is because in space you still have like interstellar media and intergalactic medium, so it has fewer particles per cubic centimeter than um, empty space. Wow, incredible! So watch that in 2015. Yeah, and and also uh, like I said, check out uh, Jana's couple of books: uh, How the Universe Got Its Spots and uh, A Madman Dreams of Turing Machines. And you're on. Do tw- you tweet? You sometimes tweet. I started tweeting like a month ago. It, Sean Carroll, who's a physics blogger, said, "Jenna, at some stage, your life gets so ridiculous. There's no point at pretense of privacy or something like that. Right. Just start tweeting." <laughs> so you're and he at- sat me down in my office, and I was like, "Oh, is this how you tweet?" Yeah. <laughs> so at at Jan Eleven. Uh, yeah, I think that is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what I don't again. even know my own tweet handle. <laughs> so that's a J A N N A L E V I N. Yes. And also, while, while we're plugging things, I'll put in another plug for um, your husband gave me a copy of his CD. Check oh, out yeah. Warren Malone, very good musician. So yes. check out his stuff. And there's no physics in it at all. There's no physics. It's one of the <laughs> most science-free pieces of music. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but I really enjoyed that. That was some great music. Yeah, he's a crooner. Definitely. I listened to a song. I did all my research on the drive over here. I listened to one of Warren's songs. I yeah. listened to the TED Talk. Excellent. Yeah, it was very pleasant. Well, he's to... here. Maybe he'll play for us when you're done. Nice. nice. That would be fantastic. I uh, saw he's got some ukuleles. I started playing ukulele last summer. Oh, yeah. Play. You should be at our real apartment. I think we have 15 instruments in that nice. apartment. Yeah. Um, and while, while we're plugging things, I'll put in one little plug for um, myself. Uh, I mean, the um, set list has started putting YouTube videos on the meltdown on the Nerdist channel oh great um so go and go to the nerdist channel google nerdist setlist youtube and you'll see various people improvising stand-up including myself there's also like tj miller uh glenn wool i can't remember who else is on rory scoville past guest of the show uh so go and check those out and and, and you're at the improv tonight i am at the improv tonight but that <laughs> i guess will this be doesn't really help that won't help because this will come out after that but, but i've threatened to go there with this microphone in hand <laughs> yes jenna's coming and she's gonna bring her own microphone and it won't be plugged into anything but she'll I'll just, just sit there with it people just look at me and i'll 
I'll look threatening. No, I think- I w- when, the, when the staff come around to take your drinks orders, you can kind of say it into the microphone and then <laughs> them. <laughs> Point it across to them like you're interviewing them. Um, I think if you come to a comedy club with a microphone, they're obligated to yeah. let you go on stage. Well, yeah. that's one of those that, own- that sounds terrible. <laughs> I can think of no fear greater than, than being on stage so leave the light with a microphone. Yeah, being expected on- to be funny. But you've you've been on talk. Colbert. You've been on... Uh- but that's different. I talk about my own stuff. It's fun. And I, okay. I like talking in an extemporaneous, you know, I don't have to be prepared or anything like that. But to stand up and be like, okay, I'm going to take a deep breath and then I'm going to be funny. That just sounds impossible. <laughs> uh, you did a moth talk. That's on the, that's in the same ballpark. But uh, the moth talks you really think through, you know. Ideally, you do for I your stand up set also. <laughs> I know. I guess. I was well, nervous I, about that I love too. the idea of producing a There's a hack, there's a, sort of a hack stop heckle put down line uh, there's a reason they don't give these out of the door like, oh, what if they just, did give them out the just pulled out a microphone yeah. and go, got my own yeah. I've got it I'm covered um, I'm good as always we do ask people any any questions comments clarifications please uh Email us uh, probablyscience at gmail.com or tweet us at probablyscience and write nice things about us on iTunes. Give us nice ratings, subscribe to the podcast, tell your friends. Uh, that helps other people find out about us. And if you do enjoy us as well, there's a PayPal. Um, uh, there's a donate button. Donate button on, on our website. And that just helps us cover some of the hosting costs. And uh, we want to thank Jamie Fraser who kicked in a nice little donation so to help much, us Jamie. keep doing the podcast. We appreciate it. Thanks, Jamie. Um, and as always thank you so much for listening we'll be back next week with probably less science but (laughs) this has been so far and away the most informative show we've ever done and I can't thank you enough for that you actually explained to me things that I never understood sufficiently that I have sort of an intuitive feel for them that will only last for about a minute or two but we can listen back to the (laughs) show a short life (laughs) we can can listen back whenever we're baffled I'll I'll be trying to explain it to someone else next week and then just I don't just listen just listen to this I'll be sorry that we're not doing this again next week I'll, I'll come in here by myself <laughs> yeah i'm sorry <laughs> until they get it through their thick skulls i'm gonna keep saying this all right in the meantime thank you uh, jana thank you so much for joining yeah, us yeah thanks thank you thanks and for having me on guys thank Bye. you and we'll see you next week